Thank you, brother. You really wonderfully captured the whole context and glory of this passage that we're going to look at today. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 again. The Spirit's help and the grace of God, we're going to finish up, sadly, (laughs) verses 6 to 11. But I want to read for the full context all 11 verses. Romans chapter 5. God's word says to us today, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And for today's consideration, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Before we look at this passage, before we dive into verses 6 to 11, this glorious, deep, secure foundation of our hope that is ours because of the the intrusion of the kingdom of God into this world, into our very lives and souls, where the eternal begotten Son willingly, joyfully, lovingly purchased for us this justification and this glorious life in God that we now have to know him in which we have now have a most assured hope that cannot be shaken, in which we exult. I, I need to review briefly and dig a little deeper into what Paul has, has just said to us in these first five verses. This is a year or two's worth of study and preaching, but this, Lord, grant us understanding in this. 
I believe you would all agree with me and, and need, that we need to know, we need to understand more and more. We need to remember, we even need to memorize and to believe in the doctrinal truths and promises of Scripture as God's revelation of himself to us, as our means of knowing him, of knowing his ways, understanding his wisdom. But it does not just stop there as merely fact, merely logic, merely a conclusion of an argument. There is intended to be an experiential reality of our being in Christ, of our experiencing newness of life, of our being set apart unto God, of our sanctification. It's what is found not only in what is described for us as exaltation in God, Crucial, yes. So necessary, yes. But what is to be experienced in what Paul says in verse 5? This experiential conclusion that is to be ours, to experience what it is to have not, our, not have our hope disappoint us, and to experience the love of God being poured out within our hearts. Why? Because it is a work of and by the Holy Spirit himself. This is not a mere fact. This is not a mere doctrinal truth. God's love is not simply something believed in on the basis of the gospel or the testimony of the cross, but it is a truly divine love that is to be experienced in rich measure and with an inner subjective certainty for the believer. We may know and we need to grow in knowing the magnitude of the role that this experience of the love of God is to have in our lives. Much in everything we just sang about. This is our foundation for knowing that our hope will not be put to shame. This is why the Spirit spoke. Because why? Be because why? Well, what if, what if your hope is only in your comfort? Only in your health, only in your 401k plan, only in your home, only in your job, only in your wife, only in your children, you fill in the blank. If so, your hope will be put to shame. It will become a complete sham to you. This is the purpose of suffering for us, dear brothers and sisters, to refine our hope to wean our hearts and minds and desires and experiences off of the comforts of health, wealth, and prosperity, or whatever it is in our temporal sojourn here, to put our hope, to fix our hope in God alone and not in this world. This is the work of those sanctifying spiritual dominoes that I talked about last week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, listen to last week's message. But perseverance, remember having that single-mindedness, not a narrow-mindedness, but a single-mindedness, proven character, experiential maturity. And these culminate in furthering hope in God because we realize our hope in God is valid. It is proven. It is in him, and we are not put to shame, and neither is our hope nor our God put to shame ever. Hear me, our hope in God is never put to shame. God is never found to be a sham. Neither is he a mere argument for our head and our conversations. He is the experience of our heart because why? 
His love, His love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Oh, we, we really need to let this sink deep into our souls. Not just agree in fact, but to set it deep. The work of God's own love being poured into our hearts is nothing less than a supernatural work of the Spirit of the triune God. It is absolutely derived from knowledge. Yes, we come to know through the hearing, the preaching of the Word of God, absolutely. It is factual, it is logical, it it has a doctrinal component, but it is dependent upon the work of the person of the Holy Spirit. And it is an experience for the believer of God. A precious, precious, to be sought after intently by the Son and the daughter of God. Not to be trifled with. Not to be used licentiously for our selfish, presumptive pursuits. God protect us from that. But also note that this love of God is experienced in measure. It's not we hit this magnitude of a plateau for the rest of our lives. We experience it. It will come in measure. Romans 8, 9, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of God, of Christ, he does not belong to him. This this is a great comfort, a confirmation for all who are in Christ. Paul tells us here, three times actually, this is the Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit. Not three separate spirits, one Spirit that each and every believer has experienced and received. And with this comes the outpouring of the love of God into our hearts. It is this work that sets believers apart from the world. It's why they are so in love with the Lord. They hunger and thirst after his righteousness and his word, his truths, his majesty. They seek to exalt him. And this is the experience of the transforming power of his spirit and his love within us. Now, as I said, in all reality, this experience varies between us. It varies with time, but there is is something else we need to see in this verse, and especially with the way the Spirit himself has transcribed this verse to us. Paul is asserting for us two things at once in this verse, and for good reason, very good reason. First is that God's love has been poured into our hearts at salvation. We, We are justified by faith through Christ, but there is also an active work going on here. That's why it's in the perfect tense. It's in an ongoing. This means that there is to be an ongoing, a continuing effect of this past work of the Spirit of God in us. This is why Paul prayed for the believers in Thessalonica in, in Second Thessalonians uh, three five, where he says, "I pray that the Lord will direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ." Paul is asking there, asking that the Lord would direct the heart of the redeemed sinner into the love of God, for it is the love of Christ, as he says, that controls us, that compels us. It is the love of God that is so satisfying, so attractive, so precious to us, more so than the things of the world. And this is a prayer of, of on, an ongoing spirit work to direct our hearts, to fill our hearts, as Jude talks about, to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we need to be reminded 
that we need so much help in keeping our heart focus to have this, this heart-saturated work of the Spirit within us. This is why Paul concludes these first five verses in Romans 5, in verse 5, with the first use of love in this letter. The first use of agape, the love of God, because it affirms the subjective apprehension of God's love in our conversion. And when his love that has been set upon us from eternity past is now become a living reality in the heart of the believer and for those justified in his blood, we now know the greatest favor and love toward us than any created human may know by faith in Christ through the powerful work of the Spirit of God. This, this richness of God's love being poured out within our hearts is a richness beyond visible, measurable, temporal wealth, anything in this world. And what we see and will see in these next verses is the very manifestation of that love, the objective groundwork, the foundation of this eternal love is what Paul sets forth in this very precious passage what he talks about later in the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of what is toward us and bestowed upon us through Christ in his death, the shedding of his blood, his resurrection, all in bringing about our reconciliation to God. And as Paul rapturously proclaims later in chapter 8, that nothing, nothing, nothing in this world, seen, unseen, no power, no tribulation, Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. However, for us to behold the beauty, the power, the mercy, the magnificence of this great work of salvation and of justification that, that gives us great and lasting hope, and brings about the outpouring of this love of God into our hearts, we've got to look at the blackness of the canvas. The deep, dark, black backdrop into which the light and life of God through Christ has shown and delivered us into a new kingdom. This is what Paul does in these verses. It's like an image. I know many of you have heard this illustration. When you want to see the clarity, the beauty, the cut, the polishing of a precious diamond, you might look at it under a loop and at light, but when you really see the beauty of it, you lay it against a black piece of velvet, and its magnificence, its glory shines forth. This is what Paul is going to do for us here. Very sadly, there's many so-called preachers who won't say anything about our sinful nature. Being afraid of man, afraid of upsetting the status quo, who, who proposed the gospel to be nothing more than a positive thinking, possibility thinking, a life-enhancing mantra, and that we are nothing more than just discouraged people who don't need to be told they're weak, they're morally dead sinners, they're wicked, they're enemies of God. But I was looking back through some, some articles I'd stored away a while ago on church history, and I found some excerpts on the Reformation and the Great Awakening that, 
apply directly to this passage. And one article I found from, from Michael Haken, he's a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary. He wrote an article about the life in the seven, late 17th and early 18th century, about 319 years ago. And he was talking about, quoting another pastor, talking about the manner of life, the morals in England, up to prior to the Great Awakening. One of them was from a, a pastor named Benjamin Keach. He was a, a London Baptist theologian, and he wrote in 1701 these questions and observations in this time. This is very profound, very amazing. He says, quote, Was ever sodomy, homosexuality, so common in a Christian nation or so notoriously and frequently committed as by two palpable evidences it appears to be in and about this city, notwithstanding the clear light of the gospel which shines therein? Was ever swearing, blasphemy, adultery, drunkenness, gluttony, self-love, and covetousness as such a height as there is at this time here? And he says, Is it not a wonder the patience of God hath not consumed us in his wrath before this time? End quote. Nothing new under the sun, is there? As much as we might think that there may have been good old days, golden days of yore, this was the lifestyle in England 300 years ago. This was man's sin nature manifested in the hearts, in the lives of the people, and it grew over the following 30 years. But what's important soon after, what can only really be described as a great act of mercy, an answer to many within the church who were praying and seeking the Lord, not for social reform, not for political correctness or improvement, but what we know as what's been identified as a great awakening, a pouring out of the Spirit of God on and in the church. It implies that there was slumberness, sleepiness, laziness, apathy, and God awakened and used people like Whitfield and others in the 1730s to be on the forefront confronting this great awakening. And in the midst of these very bad, dark days that the Spirit of God chooses to move and work powerfully, he blows and works wherever he wills. This, dear brothers and sisters, is a reason we preach and continue to preach the Word of God as he, it is given and as he illuminates our understanding to explain and exposit for you week after week. But is it our understanding? Is it our belief? Do we see our need for the work of the Spirit of God to work and move where he wills, as he wills, through the proclamation of the word? Do we deeply rely upon him? Do his desired work within us do we desire his work within us through the word of God? And our answer to this question is going to give us a clear indication as to where our hope really lies. Is it in a particular political party? Having a perfect person in the presidential office, it is, is it transforming society for the sake of transforming it into some perceived golden era that will usher in further goodness? It's never really existed in the history of humanity saving the person and the work of Christ, but or is our hope in the sovereignty of the Lord Most High? Is it 
as it should be in the powerful stirrings and work of the Spirit of God. And my hope is that God might be well pleased that in these dark days and, and seemingly hopeless days, just as he was over 300 years ago, to blow upon this land, upon the church, to move in among his people through the preaching of the word to instill again what can only be described as a great awakening. Now the amazing thing here, looking back into this message being preached within the church in the 1700s, what do we see, what do we hear? We hear from Edwards, we hear from Whitfield's sermons and proclamations on the doctrine of justification by faith in Christ. This was the doctrinal and experiential wildfire that spread through the churches, towns, and villages throughout the nation. Whitfield said, it is evident that by being justified, we are to understand being so acquitted in the sight of God as to be looked upon as though we had never offended God at all. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what Paul has proclaimed since chapter 3, verse 21 in this letter to the Romans and to us. And he's made it very clear in the opening chapter, and now here in chapter 5, that we are or were in deep, deep trouble. And that that is a, a major understatement. We are in unfathomable trouble as we stand before God. Contrary to what may be a popular opinion today that God is just some great power in the sky, we can have faith in faith that only he has only sweet sentimental feelings toward us and he'll grant us all entry into his heavenly realm. We are the objects of his unbridled wrath and fury as those under sin standing condemned in the sight of God. Paul celebrates, he exalts and calls those justified in Christ to exult in this wonderful truth that God has prepared. He is willing to change the verdict from guilty, from condemned, from damned, if you will, to innocent. He is prepared to do the forensic work of changing the sentence against us, our sentence from death to life, prepared to justify the condemned sinner by grace. And he does so without any cause in you, without any cause in me. Please please see this. There's absolutely nothing no inkling within any of us that compels, that forces, or even obliges God to make this offer to us or justify us. And there is nothing in us, nothing we have done that deserves it. It is absolutely a free gift of God, and it is through faith in him. But what are we to do? What are we to do? Simply believe in it. Believe in Jesus. For God justifies the condemned sinner in Christ alone. How? God treated the Lord Jesus upon Calvary, the cross at Calvary, as if the Lord had lived my sinful life and took all my sin and all the disobedience, all the rebellion, and put it into his account. 
He took it all, and God dealt with him accordingly. This is why we hear and read from Christ on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what is our benefit? What is the consequence of this? We are now, by God's doing, by his declaration, we are now treated as if I, at salvation and being justified, we are now treated by God as if we had lived Christ's life. It's an amazing wonder. He accounts to me, he credits to me, he imputes to me his righteousness and his perfect obedience. Now the Father changes the verdict and the sentence against me. And with this comes the glorious consequences laden to it that are ours in Christ. And Paul gives us in these next six verses not only the next three glorious consequences of God's justifying work, but in order to comprehend and deeply appreciate the depths of God's love to us, which we will look at Again, look at what Paul says about this dark backdrop of sin, of its depravity, of its description of us before a holy God. Of all of us before Christ, and if you are here and not in Christ, you have not been justified by him, this condemnation stands and is upon you right now. Verse 6, he describes us as helpless Weak, morally weak, frail in this fallen world, completely sluggish in doing what is right. Weak because of our sin, completely unable to do anything to please God. Unable to understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Unable to see the kingdom of God and enter into it, John 3, 3 and 5. Unable to seek God, Romans 3.3. We are or were a spiritual corpse, Ephesians 2.1. The the analogy, I grew up with this, hearing this from Baptist Church, sorry. We are sick, spiritually sick in bed. We can't do anything to help ourselves, but God has put the medicine on the nightstand next to us. All we need to do is reach over, grab it, and take it, we'll be well. We can't even reach out and grab the medicine. That's how spiritually dead we are. Unless the Spirit of God administers spiritual healing, we'll remain dead in our sin. And the outcome, as I talked about last week, our sin will continue to propagate sin, and that wrath of God will be poured out and revealed against us, except by the grace of God. Verse 6, we are ungodly. It conveys the same meaning as in Romans 1.18, and not just that we as humans are unlike God, but we are in or were in a state of fierce opposition to him. We opposed his sovereignty. We, don't, we want to rule ourselves, my way or the highway. God is holy, but we want to determine, we want to establish our own moral standards. I believe this is right and this is wrong. Great argument. We hear that at UNT a lot. God is omniscient, but we despise the fact that he knows it all and sees it all. Kids, remember in Sunday school, God sees and hears everything we are doing, right? And in all of this, all of these realities, God does not change. 
Verse 8, we're sinners. We exercise our nature as a sinner. We sin because we are sinners by nature. We have fallen so short. We have missed the mark so far of God's holy standard. Failing to worship and love God only as we should, but also failing miserably to treat others with respect and love as we love ourselves. Matthew 22. In verse 10, we're enemies, those opposed to God. And this is really a full summary of the context of these previous three descriptions of us. But it also conveys the reality that if the Lord Jesus were here, if he came in our day and time, we would do the same thing that they did to him in his time. The Pilate and Jews and the people crucified him. No wonder those so-called pastors disregard the full counsel of God. Rather, refusing and skirting around these exacting descriptions of our sinful estate and then their so-called sermons are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. But we need to understand and remember the bad news of who either we were or for those here now of how you are that we see this deep, black, sinful backdrop before we look at the beautiful treasure of Christ and his work, what Paul sets before us. Last week, very quickly, we looked at four, first four, the glorious consequences of God's justifying work through Christ. Verse one, therefore, consequently, for this reason, since we have been justified in, by faith in Christ, we have unwavering peace peace with God through Jesus Christ. We have uninhibited access, faith introducing us, giving us access into God's grace in which we now stand. It's a perfect voice in the Greek here. It is an ongoing position that we are granted in his presence. We have an unchanging hope. Our hope is now in the glory of God. This life is not all there is in comparison to what is coming with him unparalleled joy, joy in our tribulations, our sufferings that confirms our hope in God and applies his promises to us, all confirming that God has truly poured out his love into our hearts. And now we have the next three glorious consequences of being justified in Christ. Verse six, number five, unconditional love. Verses six to eight. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. Paul gives us an analogy there that it's a rarity that anybody here would die for another person, even if they were righteous or if they were good. It's very uncommon, but even if that did happen, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now keep these verses in mind. Look quickly back just up to verse five. As I said, this is Paul's first mention of love, of agape in this letter. And he expounds upon it this so much more in chapter eight, but, but consider this. It's God's love. Paul is referring to the Father here. And it is the love of God the Father that has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. 
This is also the first time Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in this letter. And it's also the Spirit that is the major theme of chapter 8. Now look back again at verse 8. God demonstrates. He fully revealed this love to us through whom? Through His Son, through His death. And what Paul is disclosing and revealing to us in this passage is the glorious doctrine of the Trinity. This is very intentional by Paul. He's, he's emphasizing for us that the source of this love to us is the Father. This means of the, the means of this love to us is the Spirit. And the expression of this love to us is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Son, Spirit, the triune God from the very first dawn of creation. It is the Father who creates by the Word through the Spirit and all the way through to the dawning of the new creation we see in the gospel. As the Lord Jesus, the Son incarnate, emerges from the Jordan River, having been baptized, there is the Son of God incarnate in the water, and what happens? The heavens are opened. The Spirit of God descends like a dove, and we hear the voice of heaven declare, true, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when we proclaim God as love, when we read and say and testify that God loves in such a way, what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming the doctrine of the Trinity. That the truth that God is love is nonsensical apart from the doctrine of the Trinity. What I mean is God is love because the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. God is love because the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Son. God is love because the Father loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father. God is love, yes, true, amen, and God loves himself and is the object of his own love. But what does that mean for us? It means that God is perfectly happy in and of himself. He is perfectly content. He is perfectly satisfied in the triune God and the three persons of God. Don't get upset or frustrated by this. Hear me. It means he does not need to love us. Ouch. God does not gain a thing. Nothing is added to his glory or his holiness or his eternality by loving us. Nor does he gain anything by loving us, by loving him, by us loving him, excuse me. And here is a, a wonderful truth for us to lay hold of, one to shape our worship and exaltation of who he is. God the Father chooses to love us. He chooses us to make us participants of him who is love, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is why this is the encouraging thing, for, for this is precisely the kind of love we need. True, lasting, pure, heavenly love that we desperately need. We need someone to love us who does not need us, true? True, and why? Because there are no strings attached to his love for us. Meaning that his love for us 
that is not performance-based. It does not depend on how you or I may have felt this morning or what kind of day we had last week and our workload doubled, our car broke down, or when we were late for work and our devotional time with him was, was missed. It is his love which he freely bestows on those who are the object of his delight. All those who are one with the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the work of his Spirit. It, it is whereby he brings us into fellowship with himself, into this grace now with which we stand, and we become participants in communion with him who is love. And we now have this unfathomable, mind-boggling expression of this love to us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. When? When he died for us, when we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. His name is love. His nature is love. All of Christ's expressions were love. His actions, his words, he preached love, he practiced love, he lived love, he served and died for love. It was love that walked in our flesh. It was love that gave sight to the blind. It was love that gave life to the dead. It was love that was scorned and rejected. It was love that was in bloody agony in the garden. It was love that was pierced with thorns. It was love that bore the wrath of the Father upon Calvary. Is this not a great and glorious consequence of justification? A divine benefit, God's unconditional love toward us. And as it is expressed and manifested publicly in an unmatched fashion upon Calvary, when Christ gave himself, while we were still rebels, still sinners, we were still enemies, while we were still haters of God, we have this consequence, this glorious benefit of his uncon unconditional love. Number six, the next consequence of our justification in Christ is un touchable confidence untouchable confidence verses 9 and 10 note much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life note much more how can any of us be certain that God will not change his mind? I'm a mess. I'm a sinner. You may be thinking this today. How can I be certain that God will not give up on me? I've failed so many times. How can I know that God's love will not weaken toward me? You may be thinking this this. This crazy confidence Paul speaks of here seems so divorced from my experience, so detached from my mindset, and so different what I'm going through my life each and every day. How can I be, how can I be so certain? Paul answers by giving us two very clear arguments, and we identify these arguments in these two words much more. He uses it twice. It's, it's framed around these expressions. 
two arguments here to make exactly one point, to bring out one objective truth from two different angles here, okay? He is simply arguing from the greater to the lesser. We, we do this all the time. The way of, in a way kind of, of being absurd by saying this truth is so much greater, of course this lesser truth is going to be a reality for us. And if Christ has accomplished this great work for us, he most assuredly will do this for us. First argument, verse 9, starting back in verse 8, Christ loved us by dying for us and justified us by his blood. True? Do you believe this? So how much more will he keep us saved and protect us now that we are actually God's friends? No longer enemies. Second argument is in verse 10. Christ reconciled us as enemies to God by his, by his death. True? Amen. Absolutely. How much more will he keep us, say, by or in his life? This is untouchable confidence. This is the majestic work of God alone through his Son. And if we hold firm what some have described as this great golden link of salvation that we find in Romans 8. Wonderful doctrinal truths on predestination. For those whom he, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if we believe in these indissoluble links of this great golden chain of God's salvation to us, surely Christ, having accomplished the already the greater by his death on behalf of his enemies, he will most, most, most assuredly be able to see me safely home now that I am his friend and will live in his glory. And even though we may know we sometimes sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, God, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, but he does not leave us, never. Thank the Lord that our justification does not depend on our performance. Any failures here? It rests fully on Christ's performance. Our perseverance does not depend on our effort, but it rests on Christ's efforts. All our full and final salvation into glory does not depend on our ability. It rests on Christ's ability. On touchable confidence. And now Paul brings us to the crescendo, this glorious crescendo in verse 11. As if this wasn't enough, <laughs> if these realities weren't enough, he says not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Our final, our seventh consequence, glorious consequence of the justification we have in Christ. Unsurpassed blessedness. 
unsurpassed blessedness. Not only this, we exult in God. The same ravishing that cannot be compressed. Remember the definition I gave you of exaltation? The same ravishing that cannot be compressed. The same exulting that Paul speaks of all the way back in verse 2, to our exulting in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, our exulting in our tribulations. We glory in an unbridled exultation in these truths. And these six glorious consequences of our justification in Christ. And we can see Paul's logical order here. But he brings all six of these into this final seventh consequence of crescendo. We exult and we also glory in God. That now for us, through the person and work of Christ, his eternally decreed, willing, loving sacrifice on our behalf, through him we have now received the reconciliation. The glorious exchange of our sin for his righteousness. The restoration of favor with God, our creator, and now our heavenly father. We exult in God in his glorious grace in saving us. True. We exult in his glorious faithfulness in keeping us. True. We exult in his glorious power in quickening, quickening us. True. We exult in his glorious wisdom for transforming us. True. And eclipsing all of these, we exult in God's glorious love. Christian Believer, beloved, brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I want to plead with you to make these seven consequences, these magnificent doctrine of, this magnificent doctrine of justification, part of our daily diet, our, our daily intake. Why? So we will daily delight in him. We need to daily remember Kids, what happened to those people in Nineveh? They forgot about God, right? These seven consequences and benefits will silence a disturbed conscience. We all have things, even as Christians, even as mature believers, things in our past that we deeply regret. I know there are many things I wish I could go back and change. If I could only go back, I'd do this or that. But listen, how many of us still live in the prison cell of the past? The doctrine of justification and these consequences will silence this in our conscience and will also humble an inflated heart and give us sure perspective. They remind us of just who we are and if you're hearing this as an unbeliever who, who, believers who you were, but as an unbeliever who you are, but they keep us and protect us of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And it also eases a very troubled mind, a mind encapsulated or, or tormented by fear. We are surely in a troubled world, not much different than 1701. It's a mess, it's deplorable, it's uncertain if you're not in Christ. Yet where is our hope fixed? For the Christian, our reality is determined and defined by something else, by someone else. And this doctrine of justification 
and all of its blessed consequences through Christ will ease our troubled mind. It will help us endure adversity. It will help us endure criticism or rejection. It will help us embrace hardship, and especially real for some of us, it will help us face the reality of death. This and these help us, if you remember last week, to look up, not be enslaved to the muckrake. Get our eyes of faith looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our, finisher of our faith, in whom our redemption lies and draws nigh very quickly. And where, as we saw in that picture so beautifully described, our crown of glory of his righteousness is awaiting us. But do we look up daily? May we look up daily and comprehend who we are in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. May we taste of the blessedness of our justification in him and know these to be the source of our hope and our exaltation in God. To any unbelievers here, if you don't have no idea what this is talking about, what justification in Christ, you have, I hope and I pray, heard the word of God, especially if you were here last week, but if you're just here this week, that's fine. You've heard something about these, what we call these glorious benefits, the consequences of, of, for someone being justified in Christ. Please hear me. Here again is what you must grasp. If you are not in Christ, you stand right now condemned in the sight of God. Your condemnation is not something future. It is now. You are condemned now, and you are only waiting for God to carry out his sentence. We cannot add a moment to our life. But God makes you a wonderful offer a life-giving exchange. He has prepared to change that sentence against you from guilty to innocent. He has prepared to change from death to life. And this is his promise to all who believe, who will come to him through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, the simplicity, yet the very power of God found in the good news of Jesus Christ what he did on the cross, what he did in rising from the dead. Because as the word of God says, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. So if you are here outside of Christ, will you turn to him? Will you go to him? Will you do business with him? Will you repent from your sin and put your faith in him? so that you may come to know these glorious consequences, these glorious benefits of the love of God being poured out in your heart by the Spirit to know these blessed consequences that are in Christ Jesus. And I leave us with one passage from Isaiah. Pastor, I'm not getting ahead of you there. I just want to bring this out because this is a glorious text. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Listen, please. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him.
Father in heaven. Oh, the wisdom, the love that you have displayed publicly for all to see. The very proclamation of the truth of your eternal word this day that has gone forth from this feeble mouth. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would make it effective, piercing heart and soul and mind and conscience. Father, that it would have your desired work of edifying, of convicting, of correcting, of encouraging, of strengthening, of lifting. Father, that we may behold Christ. Uh, His beauty far surpasses any diamond on a piece of black velvet. But Lord, that analogy helps us to look up to him and to see him and who he is. And he calls us to himself. Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And in my name alone is salvation. Will you run to him? Will you go to him now? Don't wait for tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. You may die tonight. Father, for your children here, Lord, may we relish in what you've done for us to know we are justified before you in your high court of heaven. Justice has been declared. The verdict has been cleared. Innocent in Christ. But Father, we forget so easily. Help us, I pray. Help us to remember. Woo us by your Spirit. Stir anew a flame. Send your Spirit, Lord, to revive us in the reality and the experience of the love that you have poured out into our hearts, oh God. Thank you, Father, for this day. I pray, Lord, your name is exalted in the heavens and the earth and in our midst. In Jesus' name.